And then I came back to Rwanda and we started building it. And so we built this entire product and it was called Insight. We maybe put like six months into it and then like launched it with a bunch of little partners in Rwanda. And it just kind of died on the vine. It wasn't quite <laughs> the right thing. It was a little complicated. Oh, no. it, was it was super programmery, you know, I'm and so it's concept. Sorry. That's not where I thought the story was going. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying is you have no idea how many random things we tried building software in Rwanda. Like at one point we built... We called it MotoMe. It was a food delivery system using moto taxis. We weren't focused on aid. We were focused on building software and doing it in Rwanda with local developers and whatever. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Rowena Luke, and you're listening to Aid Evolve, a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. We'll be hearing firsthand from people who have dedicated their lives to fighting poverty or improving healthcare and are experimenting with whether technology can help us do this better. As we listen to their dreams and their fears, their risks and their triumphs, my hope is that we can pull out some lessons learned for those of us trying to do the same. Today's episode is a fascinating conversation with Nick Potier. Nick is the CEO of Nyaruka, a software startup that he founded in Rwanda along with Eric Newcomer. Nyaruka builds and maintains RapidPro and Textit, Com. You can think of RapidPro as a way for organizations to share information over text messages or WhatsApp. Specifically, it's a way for regular people to design the flow of these automated conversations to share information with anyone who can send or receive a message. RapidPro is used today in 100 countries worldwide and runs messaging programs at national scale, reaching tens of millions of people daily. In the conversation we're about to have, we will talk about Nick. We'll talk about his rebellious youth, his crash landing in Rwanda, the startups in Seattle, and how he founded Nyaruka. But what's really interesting about this conversation is how we can follow along with how Nick first thought about sustainable software, how that thinking changed and grew and adapted over time, the things that worked and the things that were miserable failures. I also really appreciated the part towards the end where he lays bare all that a software company needs to give up in order to check the box of open source. This episode is for any one of you that's looking to start a sustainable software business, but it's also for anyone that's looking to build software that lasts. Without further ado, here we go. Like, I'm going to start off by asking you a question, which I think was you. I'm not entirely sure. But I have some memory of some epic trans-African motorcycle <laughs> ride. Was that, was that you? <laughs> yeah, that was me. Yeah. I mean, these are the sort of crazy things you do when, you, when you're living in Africa as an expat. And you want to ride motorcycles and your country doesn't have motorcycles. And so you fly to South Africa and you buy a motorcycle and you drive it back up to Rwanda. <laughs> I spent three weeks through eight countries. It was a trip of a lifetime. It was a good time. Awesome. Great to hear. I'm sure that went completely smoothly and nothing wrong happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> Nothing went wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, like all things, when there's no alternative, a solution is always found. And so that, that trip proved that out. Nick, just to get us started, can you tell us where you're from, a bit about yourself? 
Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of from all over. I was born in Tunisia, of all places. We were there maybe a year after I was born. My brother was born in Chad. My father was French um, and grew up in France till I was nine. Then moved to Chicago, went to school in Pittsburgh. Huh. I was sort of one of these people that dropped out of college because I was having more fun working than uh, than going back to school. So I was, I was at Carnegie Mellon and then interned at a software company my sophomore year. And then... Uh, kind of realized I was being paid to learn more than than I was getting by paying somebody to teach me, you know, and, and <laughs> so, so I, was, I was at the startup and I had really great mentors and I was learning all these things. And, and so I was like, why go back? You know, like I've got a paycheck. I'm doing what I love already. I'm learning a ton. Oh, man. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't I don't want to convince anyone to drop out of college because of listening <laughs> to this podcast. I don't think it's the worst outcome. <laughs> Eric has the exact same story. He did the same thing. Really? But it sounds like you must have been a little bit headstrong. Was it normal in your crew for people to drop out of college? Or my impression is like you you realized something important and then you, you stepped away from the path that was paved for you. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of one of these terrible people that like if something doesn't really interest me, I'm not very motivated to do it. And that doesn't necessarily jive very well with undergrad in a way selfishly. Once you get to be working in the field you want to work in and you're, you're working on interesting problems. That was a a pretty obvious path for me. So I dropped out of college, joined this startup and uh, worked there for a few years and they actually got sort of aqua hired, you know, so basically we went out of business, but Amazon wanted the the employees. So I uh, got aqua hired by Amazon. This is sort of like right at the peak of the dot-com boom. Worked at Amazon for a few years, totally burnt out there and then left and, and went to another startup and then another startup. So, I mean, I, I went through like a lot of different like Seattle startups. It sounds like you got a good education in the school of hard knocks, as they call it, in the real world. For sure. Yeah. And so went to, I think, two other startups and then actually decided to do my own thing for a while. Eric and I met, I guess, after Amazon at a, at a company called Intelligent Results, and we hit it off pretty quick. And You were coworkers. You are both programmers there? We were coworkers, yeah. I remember on our on my very first day, he was there before I was, and, and I, you know, I sort of showed up at eight and left at six or something. And he, and he was working really weird hours because he sort of lives across the water and I'm like packing up at six and he looks at me sort of deadpan and goes, you call that full day of work, huh? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. This was my first experience. Yeah. You know, we really hadn't chatted much since then, uh, you know, but it was just razzing me right from the start. He sounds like a real go-getter cracking the whip. Yeah. Yeah, cracking the whip. But yeah, so basically what happened was uh, this this sort of mobile phone called the Danger Hip Top came out, which was sort of like the very first, like, always internet connected smartphone out there. Danger it was like, Hip Talk. Hip Top. Like, instead of laptop, it's like a uh, hip top. Yeah, or, or also known as the Sidekick was another name for it. And uh, it was this crazy phone. It had like a full keyboard. It was first phone with like always on internet and like unmetered internet. And it had this awesome SDK. And we were just like, this is the coolest thing ever. Uh, You know, like it's (laughs) like this tiny computer in our pocket. And we just started hacking on it and building stuff. And they were also like one of the first places that had a really open sort of app store. And so at first we were just like building random stuff just because it was fun. We were just building like these online chess clients and like we built like the first like Google Maps client and like all sorts of crazy things. These chat clients actually like, you know, sort of also formative to to what we were eventually going to do. And so we just sort of like started this little dev studio building just for that platform. And we were this medium-sized fish. And well, we were a small fish in a small pond, really. Uh, Or the big fish in the small pond, but tiny compared to like the really big studios out there. And we did that for a bunch of years. It was super fun. 
And then sort of hilariously, like what changed our direction was actually the launch of like Android and iPhone. At first we were like, oh, this is great. Like we already know this kind of world. These app stores are great. These phones are great. We're going to do stuff. But it really changed the equation for us as a business in that like building an app for these app stores, even then, and it's even more so true now, is basically like buying a lottery ticket. Like if you hit it, if you know, like you can do everything right. And if you hit it and if you get your marketing right and you happen to launch at the right time and capture people's imagination, then you're going to do awesome. But alternatively, you could make nothing. <laughs> you, know, like you, could, you could spend all this time building this thing and you could make nothing. And for us, so we were sort of moving from this space where we had a pretty predictable, we would sort of spend like two months building a new app or a new game, and then we would launch it. And we sort of, you know, we didn't know how well it was going to do, but usually it would at least pay for our time. And maybe, you know, if it was super successful, it would do better than that. And so we were moving from that to then this place where we were spending way more time because sort of the apps were way more complicated and, uh, you know, and the bar was much higher for like how good the app had to be on iPhone, for example. Yeah, a lot more competition. Ton of competition. And then, you know, maybe you would do really well or maybe you'd get nothing. And it, it felt a lot riskier all of a sudden. And then we had we'd just been doing it for a long time. And so we were sort of looking for something new. And yeah, just total happenstance. Like I had a friend who was going to Rwanda for a project she was doing, totally kind of unrelated to any sort of tech, but they needed... They wanted to like try, it was sort of related to the genocide, and they wanted to like try delivering these clips from the trial that was taking place for the genocide over sort of voice calls. And they wanted like some tech assistance to do that. And I was like, sure, like, you know, that'll, that sounds like a sort of hack something together, and I'll go with you for a few weeks and uh, see what's going on. Once I got there, I actually had a lot of time on my hands to kill because uh, they were doing other things. And, and so I started like talking, sort of exploring what software was in Rwanda because I'd heard this, you know, Y2Ks or, or, or Vision 2020 sort of goal of, of building an ICT-based economy. Nick mentions Vision 2020. This was an incredibly ambitious vision established by President Paul Kagame in the year 2000 to transform Rwanda into a middle-income country by 2020. Though they didn't make it, Rwanda has made some pretty incredible achievements in this time frame. One of these achievements was making it easier for a small business like Nyaruka to get started. In 2009, Rwanda was ranked 143rd of 190 countries in the ease of doing business. This was the year right before Nick first came to Rwanda. By 2019, Rwanda was ranked 29th on the list ahead of Spain, Russia, and France. And sort of what I found was that there wasn't a whole lot happening in Rwanda at that point in time. You know, the universities were sort of trying to teach things, but there there weren't a lot of experienced developers. There were a few tiny little software companies. And to me, I was like, hey, this would be like sort of a fun thing to do. Like we could just go here and like start a software company and like sort of be part of this ecosystem. And we, had, You're kidding. you know, we just had no idea what we were going to do, but we're just like, what? You know, like we know how to build software and like, we'll just move here and build a software company here. And and so like, we weren't <laughs> so, at so you all. So you basically spent your whole career working at these, at these startups and the dot-com in Seattle. You went to Rwanda for three weeks. And in that time you were like, maybe we could start something here, like in Rwanda? Yeah. And this is where Eric gets a lot of credit because like, I'm the sort of the harebrained person that comes back. I think I was there like two weeks and I'm like, I think we should start a software company in Rwanda. And like, Eric didn't just laugh me out of the room and be like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? He's like, <laughs> oh, that sounds interesting. Why don't we go for a week and like explore it some more? But Nick, there's, there's got to be more to the story. Like, why didn't you go to Bali? Why didn't you go to like Australia? No, I mean, like, why, why yeah, Rwanda? No, I, <laughs> 
just because like I had a friend who was going there. I mean, like it was totally random. I mean, there was zero, there is no more to that story. And, and I mean, in the end it's like, whatever, like, you know, like you can make things work in any place. Right. So you could have ended up in South Africa. You could have ended up in France. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't, you know, the outcome probably would have been different, but, uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, yeah, but it ended up in Rwanda. Um, That is so random. Yeah. Yeah, it's super Damn. random. Yeah, and, and it continued to be random. I came back to the States. I was like, here's this harebrained idea. And he was like, sure, like, let's explore that. <laughs> and I started like Googling anybody doing software in East Africa and like came across all the usual suspects of like, you know, Matt Burke, Sean Blaschke, like sort of all these people that were like doing crazy things in, in East Africa. And I just cold emailed all of them. You weren't in the aid sector already. No. No, like we had zero connections with any of this. I was just like, hey, I'm a software geek. <laughs> I, I have this idea that maybe we're going to start writing software in Rwanda. I just want to like bend your ear and like hear what it's like living there. What, it, you know, like what is happening with software there. What about all the startups, you know, in, in Kenya, there's a ton of them. But even in Rwanda, there's a handful. I mean, there wasn't much of anything in Rwanda, but when, when we did go back, so we went back maybe for a week to like scope things out before like finally committing. And so we went back for a week. We basically spoke to like everyone. And like, I mean, that's the thing in like Rwanda, like you can like, you can talk to every software company there and you can talk to like all the ministries and like, and people will like give you the time and like chat with you about like, okay, here's what the business environment is like and whatever. And we flew to like... We went to Kampala. We met some of the people on the UNICEF team, you know, working in the innovation office there. I mean, like, just everybody was, like, super friendly and, and nice you to like, us. You just, like, showed up uh, at the door. You're like, hi, my name's Nick. UNICEF, let's talk. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, mean we, I think we met with Sean and maybe Evan, like, right off the bat, Evan Wheeler. You know, and we're just like, we're writing software. Like, what's, what's happening in East Africa? Like, is, does this make any sense? We were basically asking people, does it make any sense to start a software company? And everybody was like, sure. Yeah. You know, like, why not? Yeah, do it. <laughs> and then just from that, again, like total just happenstance, UNICEF was like, oh, we have this project in Rwanda that's like sort of stalled. Would you help us do this? And like, by the way, we need this yesterday. And so we were on this like one week exploratory trip and I ended up staying for like another three weeks to like build this maternity registration system in Rwanda with this sort of partnering with this Rwandan software firm. So that was kind of like right off the bat, got two feet into sort of the aid world and then sort of seeing what rapid SMS was all about. Yeah. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. I, mean, I think I'm sort of an adventurous person in general, no, um, you really? know, and so <laughs> I think right from the get go, I was pretty excited about it, you know, and, and, uh, but I mean, certainly that, that very first UNICEF project that I did in, in Rwanda, you know, and we sort of like built this whole system over three weeks, you know, sort of doing this birth registration and sort of, we went out to the field and we were training community health workers on how to use it. And like, it's hard not to drink the Kool-Aid at that point, you know, when you're seeing like community health workers using your system and, and seeing live data come in and stuff. And it's very difficult not to get excited about that, even though in retrospect, I think there's reason for skepticism, <laughs> you know, about <laughs> some of those things. <laughs> and so I, I think it was pretty obvious, you know, to us. I mean, we had a little bit of our own runway, you know, that we'd built up, you know, stashing away over the years from our own business. And so we were kind of like, hey, worst case, we'd like do this for a year. You know, I was kind of like the the shock troop that went in for like a year first to like set things up and like make sure like it wasn't totally going to fall apart before Eric moved his family over, you know, because he has two kids and a wife. And I was just, you know, it was just me at the time. 
but uh yeah i mean it was it was a great adventure um i mean looking back it, it does seem a little crazy and it, it seems a little crazy that it even crazier that it worked out in the end yeah i mean i think you just have to go for it sometimes yeah so we did that like that first project and and or i did that first project in rwanda and then we went there but like that was kind of it you know like that was like this one contracting gig and then i was just there and then i think we had like one other I went to Madagascar and I did like a two week sort of thing with UNICEF as well, where I was sort of doing this evaluation of like what kind of tools do these programs in Madagascar need to sort of focused around SMS, but like trying to do data collection and, and all these other things. And I, and I sort of what came out of that was sort of this, this white paper that came out of it, which I think they were disappointed about because like, I think they really wanted like a piece of software out of it. And I was like, I'm here like for two weeks and like, I'm not going to build like this like crazy thing from scratch, but I'm going to give you a blueprint in my expert opinion, expert as in like, I've seen two of these systems and I interviewed a bunch of people, but in my opinion, this is what the world needs. And it, and it was sort of this, uh, I had a clever acronym for it, which was a uh, CPBL capable was like, I was really proud of myself and it stood so for, uh, Oh, capable. Gotcha. Yeah, capable. You need a capable <laughs> system. You need something that can collect data, that can pull people, that can broadcast information, and that can listen to people. And I was like, these are the these are the main use cases for SMS systems. Uh, you need to build a platform that does this. I remember reading that document when it came out. That was a great document in my mind, you know, because even for for me, where I was at the time with Demagi building these SMS systems, I was like, oh yeah, these are this is the core flows, these are the core architectures that we need to build. I actually, I actually really like that document. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was only reminded of it recently, and and I haven't gone back to reread it to see how it how it stands the test of time. But uh, <laughs> but at, on broad strokes, I think it was actually you know even with my understanding now, I think it's it was reasonably correct. And so I sort of like gave him that and I was like, here's what I think, you know, you as UNICEF should do. Probably not just this Madagascar office, but as a larger whole, this is, you know, this is what I think would fit a lot of use cases. And then I came back to Rwanda and we started building it. We were just like, hey, you know, this is something we know. And so we built like this entire product, you know, this entire hosted platform and it was called Insight. And like, it sort of had like all those components in it. We sort of had tabs across the top that did it. And... I mean, I don't know, we maybe put like six months into it and then like launched it with a bunch of like little partners in, in Rwanda and it just kind of died on the vine. Like it wasn't quite <laughs> the right thing. Like it was a little complicated. Oh, no. it, was it was super programmery, you know, I'm and so its sorry. concepts. And, and That's not where I thought the story was going. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying is like, you have no idea how many random things we tried building software in Rwanda. Like at one point we built... We called it MotoMe. It was like a food delivery system using Moto Taxis. Like we weren't like focused on aid. We were focused on like building software and doing it in Rwanda with like local developers and whatever. That's amazing. But unlike what the work that you're doing in Seattle, I'm guessing you didn't have a lot of angel investors or venture capital to work with. I, it sounds like were you just living off the savings that you have from your time in Seattle? Is that right? Yeah, totally bootstrap. Yeah, so we, I mean, the good news, and we would sort of talk about this, and the good news is you can live on, like, almost nothing in Rwanda, right? I mean, like, I think, you know, we paid People ourselves. talk about that more, like, why, you know, why it's a good place to start a company because of that low cost of living. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful, tons of opportunity, and it, it costs, like, nothing to live. I mean, I think we, we paid ourselves maybe three grand a month and, you know, had plenty of money. <laughs> Nick, you need to pitch all the other software developers we want to recruit into the space, like in Rwanda and all the other countries. 
hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> move, move to Kigali and do your startup there. Like you will not be disappointed. Even if you're like targeting the world and not even East Africa, you could do a lot worse or Cape Town for that matter. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> if you want an even more beautiful place. So if Insights wasn't the beginning of Textit, what was? When did Textit come around? So, I mean, at some point we started getting a little bit nervous that we weren't making any money and, you know, and like our core was <laughs> well, You was do definitely... have that, that risk aversion somewhere in you. You do get nervous sometimes. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, we're like, we're going to have to go home and like go get jobs again sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and so we started doing more contract work for a bunch of NGOs there. And we weren't particularly specializing in this, but everybody wanted to do SMS systems in some way or another. So we built sort of this... SMS system for TechnoServe that was sort of like tracking coffee, essentially like coffee income by farmers uh, in order to like certify the coffee as fair trade. So sort of this really interesting sort of like you need to track the data in order to be able to certify the data or certify that the coffee is fair trade, which then leads to higher incomes for the farmers sort of thing. And a bunch of other like random SMS systems. And sort of what came out of that was you know, a lot of experience building building these different use cases, but also sort of this understanding that like, one, we're seeing the same thing over and over. People have the same requirements. Two, people think they know what they want to build, but then you build it and then they're like, that that's not the thing we wanted to build. Like, sorry. <laughs> like, well, you totally <laughs> flip this upside down and like make it do this different thing instead. And we're like, but we spent all this time like building you this beautiful thing that you wanted. And so you change that. And even if, you know, by some miracle you built the right thing, things change on the ground, right? So requirements change, circumstances change, and people want to go back and change the software. And like to us, like, I mean, one of the reasons we like software in general is that like it, you know, like you're, you can build things that don't require you to have an effect. And so to us, like sort of this consulting was like, we're like, why are we, we're like the, like, we're the rate limiting step in this, you know, like people are like, oh, I want the system to do this instead. And we're like, all right, well, that's going to take a few days for us to like tweak it to do that, you know? And then like, oh, now we have to like, you have to pay us more money to do that, <laughs> like whatever. <laughs> and it's more contracts and like, we, we hate contracts and, and all this. And so I think we had been trying like a bunch of, you know, random ideas like that Moto Me thing and, and other things. And and at some point, I think I read some article on Hacker News. I was like, hey, if you're like looking for an idea for a business or something to start, like, here's some things to think about. Like one, find something that has a market big enough to support you. And we're like, yeah, you know, like if we built like an awesome SMS platform, would it be big enough to support us? And we're like, yeah, we think so. Like there's enough, you know, there's enough people doing this sort of thing. And then two was like, can you be the best in the field? It's one thing to, you know, like, is that plausible that you could be the best in the field? And obviously that requires some hubris, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you, do, you need to have some hubris, but like, we're like, I mean, at that point, this is like 2012, I guess, you know, I mean, there's a lot of software out in the world. There's a lot of, a lot of startups doing things. And, and a lot of these spaces were like, yeah, there's no way we can be the best at that thing. <laughs> um, but like this thing, like an SMS platform, you know, or like a, a bot building platform, we're like, that's something we could be the best at, you know, like maybe we should give that an honest go again. But let's dive into that a little bit more because because when I think of messaging platforms like SMS, I think there's a, a ton of them. You know, any any market anywhere you go, you know, like there's like there's SMS for for marketing for quizzes. For, you know, like there's there's a lot of messaging platforms out there. I, I think I'm maybe I'm not quite understanding the thing that you were that you were going after when you created this. So I mean, two things is like one, there's a ton now, and there's there were many fewer then in 2012. And, and I don't even mean in the aid sector. I just mean, you know, in general, like if messaging and 
Canada or the United States. I mean, and a lot of those are one way, right? So like there's a, there, SMS was really sort of mostly about just like slamming people with marketing messages or information or whatever. And that was really leaving a lot on the table as far as we were concerned because we're like, hey, this is like this two-way medium and it should be able to be super powerful. And so we didn't really know, but we, we ended up started building essentially like a much prettier version of Insight. And so it wasn't actually that unique until like maybe two or three months before we launched. And then we sort of got this idea for like building these flows instead. So we were sort of like originally, like we sort of had this like polling component where you could put in like, oh, you can ask this question and people can respond with these answers and you can ask this question and people, you know, and it was sort of very form-based sort of thing. And at some point we said, we sort of like, I think we saw some other system that that used sort of this, uh, like a f- sort of flow chart sort of paradigm where you could drag and drop like boxes around and be like, oh, if people answer this way, go down that way. And we're like, oh my gosh, like this is the thing, you know? And we sort of like scrapped everything apart from that. We're like, everything we do from now on is going to be a flow. And we launched with that. And that was like, that was pretty revolutionary at that point. Like nobody had built something that was that sort of flexible. Yeah, yeah. No, I can I can see what you're talking about. Like you started off building, you know, custom hard-coded SMS systems. After a while you realize, hey, no one else is doing interactive messaging in this African market in the in the aid sector. We can do that better than anyone else. And then as you're building that, you built essentially one of the first no-code platforms for interactive SMS workflows. And you know, again, and if we're talking about like a western market, maybe there's apps and smartphones and everything else that you could use for that, but like here's here's a particular niche where you knew you could empower maybe a health worker or maybe a monitoring evaluation person to build their own interactive data collection tools over SMS. So there's that evolution from like custom to a platform that some that a regular person can use to build SMS workflows, right? Yeah, and I think there were sort of two components to that. One, which, you know, coming back to what I was saying earlier, we wanted to remove ourselves from that loop of like learning and iterating and building your system. We just wanted to give you the tool and then like in the matter of a few days, you could like run those experiments and see, oh, like it works better if I send this message and then that message or if I word it this way or that way or if I accept these sort of keywords. And so we're like, we don't want to be involved with any of that. We just want to give you the tools and then like make it super easy to use. And we want you to iterate. And like, you know, one, you can fail fast. You can figure out if this idea you have makes any sense at all. And like, you know, spend no money to figure that out. And two, maybe it does make sense, but like not in these ways. And so maybe you need to iterate on that. And so... So that was a, sort of a really big thing. The the other piece of it was sort of back then, the focus was very much more sort of these SMS forms where you were sending these very structured messages, which were like kind of bananas if you ask me to this day. I'm kind of like, <laughs> oh my gosh, could this be more toxic, you know, as a user interface where you had to like send like, you would send like the word birth and then you would have to like put an M or an F if it was a male or a female and then the, the age and the year and like all this stuff. And, yeah, yeah no, uh, I remember these like 140 characters and like every third letter needed to be just so. And if you ended up putting them like a zero instead of an O, then like the whole system would break and just like all these things that, that um, you know, we got these health workers to do. Right. And it was like, and it just seemed like nuts because if you ever wanted to change things, you had to like retrain all your community health workers in the entire country, like just because yeah. you wanted one more field <laughs> or you want, you know, or something like that. And we're like, this is crazy. This is untenable. So we really, you know, with, with text it sort of went out and said, Hey, 
this should be like a chat. People are used to chatting over SMS. Like it shouldn't be this like crazy computerized weird system. It should be like, hey, you're registering to birth. How old is the mother? Or where are you located? You know, like very direct things. And the nice thing with that is you can like, I don't want to collect that information. You just take that question out. Like it's not going to confuse me a health worker. They're just like, yeah, all right. I didn't get asked that question this time. You know, or, or you can have skip logic. You can have any number of things, right? So the flexibility there was key. In the next part of our conversation, Nick is going to talk a lot about the experiments and iterations that he made in trying to figure out a way to support software over time. He uses a few industry terms. So let me explain a bit what he's talking about. He talks about the evolution from a consulting business to a product business, and specifically from a model where he was selling his time as a software developer into the world where he was running a SaaS product. What is a SaaS product? Well, the first pieces of commercial software were sold with a licensing fee. You know, you'd buy your version of Microsoft Office and pay 300 bucks for it. And then you wouldn't pay anything until you bought the next version of Microsoft Office. Most of the industry has moved away from that model, even Microsoft, towards something called SaaS, software as a service. In a SaaS model, users of a system will pay a smaller recurring monthly fee in order to get access to the software license, as well as any other add-ons, hosting, upgrades, bug support, other kinds of support, etc. Nick talks about his dialogues with the UN agencies and how they pushed him towards open source. Specifically, he uses the term GPL, which stands for the GNU Public License. So there's open source, and then there's open source. In the general sense, open source means that the source code is freely available to use, copy, and modify. GPL is a specific beast within the open source community, known as copyleft. GPL governs not only the software itself, but that software's derivatives. Its children and its grandchildren will always and forever be GPL and open source. Now, pay attention when Nick talks about the exit and why an open source approach takes the exit off the table. I was pretty impressed by how blunt Nick was in talking about the drawbacks of open source for Nyaruka. And it gives you pause to think of what the implications of open source are for any small local technology startup looking to serve the aid industry. But anyways, let's get back to Nick. So we we started building this Textit and Textit was like closed source. It was like, it was our play for a sort of a software as a service, you know, like we were sort of entrepreneurs and, and, you know, that was very explicit for us where we're like, hey, software needs to be maintained. It needs to be built upon. And and we'd sort of seen sort of this grant-based world and contract-based world of building software. And we're like, this is not tenable. You know, like you can't build good software long-term and continue to evolve a platform and do it one contract at a time. It's, it's just not going to work. And so, you know, sort of our big play right off the bat was like, hey, this is a paid thing. You know, it's not be expensive because we're going to spread that cost out across a ton of people but this is a paid thing if you want to like launch a thing for with like a thousand people in rwanda it's going to cost you like i don't know 20 bucks or something you know like it's not going to be it's not going to be much money but it's going to be some money and if you're going to do this nationwide it's going to cost more than that but it's the way we thought about it was our costs were always were always going to be a fraction of the cost you were going to pay for the sms messages so you know this is different now that there's you know uh, ip-based messaging where that that's free on on facebook or whatsapp or, or whatever but we're like you know like you're already spending money on this we know you are like you have to send these sms's like 
the automation, you know, should come at a cost. We're going to be a fraction of that. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like you're talking about this this software as a service business model, where instead of, you know, give me $10,000 or $100,000 for a piece of software, people are giving you a small amount every month, month after month, as they continue to use your service. Um, and that's, I think, was was a big shift in, in the tech industry in the West, and is also something that, to some extent, is coming to aid. But it's tricky. Like, how is it I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this on this call, but how's it going <laughs> for you? Is it well, working? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's it's super tricky, right? And I mean, it's super tricky for us, and it's complicated. So we built Textit that way, and we launched Textit, and, and we were sort of out there for a year, and we we're doing pretty good, but not like amazing. But we had a lot of interest from bigger aid organizations, and one of those was UNICEF that was like, hey, this is kind of like ticking all the boxes for us, and we really want to adopt this. But like, we're super strict that like we don't want to adopt tools that aren't open source. Like, we sort of sign on to these, yeah, rules as to how we want to operate in the digital world, and 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 I mean, you hear that, and that makes a ton of sense. I mean, we saw plenty of cases where, and, and I imagine an organization like UNICEF, you know, using the the funds that it has from the public in order to invest in software, they have a certain onus that it should be open source. Like they're the kind of the way that the aid industry is built is that there should be an open good that different people can access. So UNICEF and the UN in general has this mandate around open source software. So I can see how that would come up against you. You have this great product. They're looking at it. They say, "Hey, we want to use it, but it's got to be open source." Right. And that was a, that was a big challenge. And, and I think, you know, sadly, I think the private sector kind of made its own bed there by being bad actors at various points. Right. I mean, I think there were there's lots there were definitely examples of private sector companies like building these big systems for governments, for example, and then like cranking up the prices, you know, year after year, you know, once all the data is in there and there's vendor lock in and everything else. And, and that's what happens when when something isn't open source. And so yeah, I, it's insane how much the U.S. government pays for some of its software. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, it, it makes sense, you know, and so we couldn't disagree with that. And so we we then sort of worked with UNICEF to, to open source Rapid Pro because we're like, you know, we want this software to live on. We want this project to live on. And we want it to have like a really big impact. We're, we are sort of big believers that like, hey, this is this is a cool thing. We really believe that it can make a difference by allowing people to iterate on these ideas really quickly. And so we worked with UNICEF to open source it. Was that hard for you coming from the private sector as you were? You know, like, hey, anyone can steal my intellectual property. You know, some, I don't know, some, some yeah. come along. And- so this is where it starts getting complicated. Yeah. I mean, so so I think there's two pieces of that. So one, when we sort of sat down with UNICEF to make that decision, you know, we said, hey, you know, we'll open source this and, and you know, we'll, you'll pay us some money to like account for all the work that go, that went into this in order for us to open source this. But Software is a living thing and it's rotting and like us open sourcing, sourcing this is not enough, you know, to keep this platform alive and to keep it moving forward, et cetera. There needs to be ongoing incentives. And we still think even with this being open source, the right incentive structure is sort of like paid hosting. So like sort of usage based hosting for this. And so like right from the start with UNICEF, we're like, we'll open source this. We're really interested in doing this, but we want you to sign on to saying that like your country offices are going are going to sort of pay like licensing fees or like not licensing, like hosting fees, actually. I mean, so they're going to pay for us to host for them and continue to build the platform based on that recurring revenue. And that and that's kind of what was our biggest coup, I would say. I mean, like, you know, and, and sort of like, I mean, maybe coup is the wrong word, but sort of the, <laughs> it's a great word. the biggest sort of turning point <laughs> in that you know, we figured out how to get some recurring revenue for an open source platform to continue to grow it and make it relevant into the future. And 
And thank God, you know, they agreed because like one of the very first projects that we did with, or one of the very first things they did with Textit, or that turned into Rapid Pro. So Rapid Pro is a software. Textit is sort of our hosted service. One of the very first things they did with Rapid Pro was launched in Nigeria, right? And so Nigeria, huge country, a zillion people, super active. And like, oh my gosh, the growth of their usage was like just so bananas. And that was a ton of investment that we put in over the years, you know, and we've done that multiple times since where we just like essentially like rebuilt the entire thing from scratch again. Nick, I'm not sure if you're at liberty to talk about this, but having looked at term sheets that people have with investors or the way that mergers and acquisitions are are done, this relationship that you have with UNICEF, it sounds complex. You know, at some point, you there's your baby, there's your software that you've poured years of your own personal life into. You're going to open source it. You're going to put it out there for, any, for anyone to use. And you have this relationship with UNICEF that's going to ensure its continuity. Can you talk a bit about the contours of, of how that relationship with UNICEF works? And again, if you if you if you can't, that's totally fine. I don't want to steal your business. Or no, I mean it's it's actually super simple, yeah, and and it's not as complicated as you might think. I mean, you know, so the software is open source. Like we're dual copyright holders on on most of it. Some of it we're actually full copyright owners on. Now you're good and UNICEF. Yeah, we're good and UNICEF. Yeah, and so you know the the software is just a thing, right? It's out there. Like we develop and contribute to it openly it's all on github every day you can see our our dirty laundry as we fix bugs and make changes <laughs> and have prs and argue about things that's all out there and then you know the rest of it is like super easy like it's basically like we charge hosting for for that software to unicef offices and we're actually not the only ones who do it you know there are other people who host rapid pro for unicef country offices you know ona does it Italysoft in brazil does it like there's you know there's people that essentially like take our software and and host it and don't do much else except that but that's also part of the beauty of the system in that like it being open source keeps us as honest actors yeah can you imagine you know let's say some tiny little company from India or China comes along and they say, hey, we can host for half the cost of Nurka. Could UNICEF just work with them in every country that they want to work with? And there's no there's no particular like attachment to Nyaruka apart from the relationship that you already have. Is that true? Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly true. And that already happens. We are not the cheapest host, but we're the ones who build it. So like you get better support when you're, if you do run into something with your country office or, you're, you know, I mean, it's a software as a service. So it's like, we're answering support tickets on a daily basis. We're helping you build your system. We're helping you scale it and we're helping you integrate with integrate with aggregators and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, there, there are, there are people that host that are less expensive than us, but I think it's, it's symbiotic in that respect, right? Like UNICEF recognizes the value we have. Like we spend a hundred percent of the revenue that we get on like making the platform better when they pay somebody else half as much, they spend 0% of that revenue making the platform better. They're just hosting it. And they, you know, in a way they sort of shuffle and make decisions I mean, UNICEF's so decentralized. I don't think there's any real planning taking place. I think it's just like this country <laughs> office is like, sure, like we'll take the lowest price. And these people are more convinced by our like, hey, you know, you're supporting this platform. You're going to get better support, et cetera. Fascinating. Good to know. Yeah, it's not complicated at all. I mean, there's no, like no... no and, I, and I really respect what you did there. Like I, for the benefit of those who don't write software, I think putting your code that you've sweated over and you've poured years of your life out there into the public domain... So that just on the possibility that UNICEF will engage you in this country or that country while your code is also available for other software firms to take. I think that takes a lot of a lot of courage. And yeah, I think it's, it's great that you did that. And it's great that it's in the public domain. 
I mean, there's pros and cons to it. I mean, we, so, you know, the flip side of that is we host on TextEd for like anybody, right? And so like anybody can set up an account instantly and start using the platform. And if they're only doing like hundred people, it's free. Otherwise it's like 25 bucks a month, you know? And so it's super cheap and that's part of our revenue too. And that's both private sector and public sector. Like, you know, we have all sorts of people in the private sector and the States using it for, for various things. The one thing that you do lose and this is kind of like, this is kind of a big one, actually, is that like, you know, software to some extent is like, it's this huge asset that you're building, you know, as you continue, like, and especially the more time you put into it, the more use cases, it's this more and more valuable asset that becomes harder and harder for somebody else to reproduce. And that is often the exit for a software company is that some larger company shows up and says, that asset you've built over all these years, that's really valuable. We don't want to like invest, you know, years into building that thing. So we're just going to buy you, you know, here's a, here's millions of dollars. We just want your IP. You know, we'll take your team for a while to maintain it or whatever. Like this is, you know, this is one of the like most common ways for software companies to exit. And like, the other most common way is to essentially sell that software to enterprise, to really big, you know, Cargill's and like giant enterprises that want like customizations or whatever, but are willing to pay like six figures for that. And both of those are off the table for us. Nobody's going to pay us for our IP because that IP is encumbered and that it's GPL and, and nobody's going to, no cargo is going to like pay for us to host the software because they have IT departments that are a thousand times larger than us as a company. So they're like, whatever, like, we're just going to download this and like boot it up. And like, it's not a big thing. And so, you know, it's not all roses, you know, as far as this arrangement goes, but, but it is tenable. And, and the, the big thing is it gives us the recurring revenue such that we can do the infrastructure work that is like so unsexy and nobody wants to fund. Even we, as we look at it, we're like, oh my God, we spent two years rebuilding this thing from scratch and it does the exact same thing it did before just a thousand times faster like was this worth it and it is worth it in the end you you know it's a necessary investment you have put in but it's really hard to convince others from the outside that it, that it makes sense because nobody can understand the scale of that work that makes sense and i really appreciate you pulling out all the different contours of the trade-offs that you have there i think it is the approach has a lot of upsides for the sector and the work that we do and a lot of risks and downsides for you. Like there's there's that exit that you no longer have. And maybe that's part of what it means to work on you work on aid industry, to work on an open good, to work on a global good. It's that you've you've given it up for this sector and won't be able to profit from it the way that you would if you were still in Seattle <laughs> uh, working at a at a private company. All right, Nick, let's switch over to our rapid fire questions. The first question for you is if there are young professionals listening to this podcast that are interested in using technology for good, whether you have any advice for them? I mean, I think first and foremost, like do what you love. Like I've never been, that's never failed me. Like just if you're really interested in something, just chase after it. You know, something will likely work out from that. And if not, you're, you're going to learn something. You're going to be richer out of it. But you should enjoy what you're doing. If you're not, then like, stop doing it and find something you enjoy doing. Like it's not, you know, like it's not, there's a lot of options for you out there in the world. I mean, I think the, the, the corollary to that, and I think especially from a volunteer perspective is like, think about the sustainability and the impact of what you're doing. And I think one thing you get out of living in Rwanda or, or wherever for a while is that you, you know, you see so much volunteerism taking place and, and like good intents and people being super excited about doing things, but they're not, 
they just don't understand sort of like, hey, when you walk away, like this whole thing is going to collapse, <laughs> you know, and like you're not you're not building something that's going to outlast you or outlast, you know, your presence here. And potentially you're harming capacity that's nascent and that's being built locally here or some other project is trying to do this in a more sustainable way. And you're, you know, you're sort of getting in the way of that happening. And so sort of look at the bigger picture and think through your part in that and and how not to cause more harm than good even though a lot of times it you know it's it's hard to separate the two wise words on the first point that you mentioned there's a a quote i forget who said it which is don't ask what the world needs ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is more people who come alive nice i like that next question is whether you have any requests for donors or policymakers might be listening to this show yeah i mean sort of circling back to what we were talking about around funding i mean just like find new models to to fund software than grants and instead pay for pay for usage pay for hosting you know like enable i mean there's a lot to be said for entrepreneurship for like that free market hustle of like people competing for your you know competing for your dollar for a sustainable sort of business that they can build the incentives are just not aligned for doing software as on contracting work, you know, or grants. Like it's like, there's no maintainability isn't part of it. Like scalability isn't part of it. Like you're just like, I got to satisfy this contract and like, I'm going to do that in as little time as possible to have the greatest profit margin and deliver it. And then I'm done. You know, I never need to touch that thing again. And like (laughs) nothing good is going to be built that way, right? Like you want the incentives to be aligned. It's like funding the building of a house, but having nothing for the electricity or the power or the paint jobs or everything else that you need as the years roll by. One last thing, like sort of understand the corrupting influence of that like grant work, you know, in that if you're just like paying money for features, you know, or paying money to add this particular thing, like a lot of times that that thing should not be in that product or that thing should not be in that platform. But those people are saying yes, because they have no other way of getting <laughs> getting that money <laughs> and like staying alive. And so there's sort of this corruption that occurs from, you know, corruption of vision, corruption of the purity of the product, because like every feature you put on is debt, you know, it's, it's debt to those maintainers of that platform. They need to keep that feature alive forever. They need to like maintain it. They need to like, you know, deal with whatever confusion that like weird wart that you paid to add on to their their thing might cause to users. So, so sort of understand that there's even pain for feature work, especially if it's feature work that like maybe the developer is not super excited about or wasn't on their roadmap is corrupting in itself and can cause problems with that project long-term. Wow. I'm just going to repeat that. Every feature you put on is debt. It's so true. And, you know, it's, it's something that's true of software. And if you haven't worked on software, maybe it's hard to wrap your head around it, but it's, it's so true. You need to maintain it. You need to let it live. Oh, well put. Nick, can you recommend a technology, maybe somebody else's platform that you've worked with that makes your work better, easier, or inspires you? I know a lot of people use Slack and and Microsoft Teams and Discord and that sort of stuff. Um, We, our team is super distributed across time zones, and we've had really good luck with this platform called Twist, which is, uh, yeah, not super well known. um, Haven't heard of it. But they sort of have this really different concept of how to do team collaboration. And it's, I I feel like it's like team collaboration for adults, you know, (laughs) for people who like respect time (laughs) and like thought and like deep thought and deep conversation. And we really like it. I think it's a it's a great way to collaborate. Um, it has a chat component in it as well, but it's it's more based around sort of these longer threads and and works really well, especially if your team is distributed. Do you have a, a gotcha, an implementation mistake that you've seen in your work that keeps on coming up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think 
the biggest one, and, and I, I mean, back to that question of like features or debt is like saying yes to too many things. Like you're going to be defined more by what you say no to. And I think this this is sort of covered by by others. Every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else, you know? So like, don't think that like when you say yes to like adding some feature or or taking on some piece of work that you're being generous, you're actually taking something away in that same time because you only have so much time and resources to invest in something. So sort of like wrapping your head around that, like a lot of times saying no is is the right answer if you have a strong vision and you have a strong idea of, of where you're going and what the user needs more broadly are. And we've learned that time and time again, you know, like we've said yes to like adding things and then we're like, why did we do that? That was, that was, <laughs> that was the wrong thing. And, and then we end up trying to rip it out later or, or whatnot. But saying no is more powerful than saying yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And that applies both to practitioners, aid workers and software developers. Do you want to give a shout out to another mover or shaker in this field? ResistBot in the States is super cool. They started off shortly after the 2016 election and they were sort of this idea of trying to, in the United States, not, you know, like we always think about these things in, in, uh, in sort of the global South, but this was in the United States trying to close the loop between uh, representatives in Congress and the Senate and and constituents. And so they sort of built this like chatbot that lets you like essentially write a letter to your senator by like just typing a few things of like what your zip code is, you know, and then you just write your letter out. And then they like, they start off just faxing them to all these senators and, and congressmen. And then, um, you know, some of those congressmen turned off their fax machines. And then, so then they started printing them and like delivering like these stacks, like a thousand pages high of like all the comments that people would have about issues. But it's just sort of a really cool example of, in a way, using chatbots to sort of amplify people's voices. And I think sort of there's another company or another um, organization called Africa's Voices that's kind of doing a similar thing in East Africa, uh, where again, they're trying to close the loop between sort of like constituents, you know, just ordinary people and policymakers. And and I think that's one of the really cool things about um, sort of SMS or chat or, you know, any of these things in that you're you're trying to create this dialogue and, and trying to close the loop and what people are thinking and, and how they're being governed. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nick. This has been a lovely conversation with you. If folks are listening to this podcast and they want to find out a little bit more about you and what you're up to right now, what's the best way to find you on the internet? I mean, I have a pretty big internet yeah, uh, presence. So you can just, uh, you can just Google me. I mean, if you're free to send me an email too. Uh, it's just NIC at Nyaruka, N-Y-A-R-U-K-A.com. Uh, happy to answer any and all queries. I, I think it's always fun hearing what people are up to and, and uh, happy to share any, any knowledge or, or assist people in any way I can. And of course, anybody who wants to check out Rapid Pro and, um, use our, our tools should uh, just go to text.com and, and they can sign up for free and, and start using it right off the bat. Nick, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? So just before we wrap up, I wanted to call out my team, which is really the ones that made all this possible. First and foremost, Eric Newcomer for being an, an awesome partner in crime and sort of there to enable all this to happen over the years. Norbert Quizera, uh, one of our engineers in Rwanda, who's a badass and uh, works on the platform every day. And same with Rowan Seymour, who's been doing an awesome job sort of moving us forward and keeping our architecture sound. And last but not least, Leah Breeden, who supports our customers every day and sort of writes awesome documentation to make sure everybody's successful. None of this would have been possible without those guys. Thank you so much, Nick. It's been a joy. Oh man, that went by super, super quickly. 
We could take hours just to talk about any one of those business models that Nick touched on so briefly. If you'd like to hear more about any of them, either from Nick or from another guest, let me know on Twitter at 8Evolved or via email at podcast at 8Evolved. Stay tuned for our next episode. Bye now.